Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine for Wednesday, May 17th. I'm Shelby Herbert reporting for KFSK. In a state where fish landings are most often measured in the millions of pounds and millions of fish, the Alaska Southeast Alaska troll catch of king salmon is a small fraction of the overall harvest. This coming season, if there is a season, Southeast trollers will take just 149,000 Chinook. Those fish are mixed into a salmon pie that is shared by Alaska, Washington, Oregon, and Canada. A pie that's sliced by an international agreement called the Pacific Salmon Treaty. Over the past couple of decades, Southeast trollers have accepted smaller slices of the pie to preserve the health of salmon stocks covered by the treaty, And they've even accepted deep cuts in the harvest of kings, which originate in Alaska's rivers and aren't subject to the treaty, to make sure that those stocks thrive. In short, Southeast trollers have nothing to gain and everything to lose if king salmon don't survive. In the final installment of a conversation series with Jackie Foss, Eric Jordan, and Jim Moore, Robert Woolsey asked these Sitka-based trollers to share their views on conservation even as their fishery and their livelihoods are threatened by a lawsuit from a Washington state environmental group. I want to make it very clear that trolling is a hundred year old fishery. And if it was not sustainable for a long period of time, it would be evident. And I have not ever seen another resource extraction group begrudgingly but willingly to not go fishing to ensure the longevity of the species. Is that the right thing to do? Absolutely. When it became apparent that we were going to take a hit on king salmon in the last treaty cycle for political and conservation purposes, we could weather it because the emphasis is making sure there's fish in the future. Trawlers have been the allies of conservationists for decades. Salmon fishermen all over this state fight things like Pebble Mine, fight things like Borax Mine in uh, Misty Fjords, have worked to protect uh, salmon habitat throughout the region from mines in British Columbia. I've written op-ed editorials on those mines, working with Salmon State and others. We are the greatest allies of people who want to conserve king salmon and other salmon species. And for us to be vilified and attacked is just plain wrong. It's really easy to look at a problem and decide that someone else should pay for it. It's really, really hard to look internally to see what you're doing and how you're contributing to that problem. And I really feel like that's what's happening here. This this fishery uh, is the poster child for sustainability. There's never been, that I know of, any run of salmon that's been wiped out by a hook-and-line fishery. When I first started fishing, there was the criticism that it's too inefficient. Okay, well, you know, we're not hearing that much anymore. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we're, he- we're hearing these narratives that are just outright lies, you know, like the increase in greedy corporate fishing. My kids grew up on the back deck of the boat. You know, this is this is greedy corporate fishing. You know, they they learned that they could work hard and 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 produce something tangible. 
And like I began with, your success depends on being able to understand and connect with something you can't see directly. You know, from that standpoint, it, it's like science. I can't decide whether it's more like art or like science. It's both. And one of the things that happens, as both Jim and Jackie have mentioned, is the connection mm -hmm. you develop with these places, the ocean, the ecology, the, the fish that you're pursuing. It's really a love affair. You just love it. You love everything about it. You know, I, I love I love the killer whale. I'm connected with the killer whale, you know. This is not about saving the killer whale, this this battle. It's about destroying this industry. That's the agenda stated agenda the Wild Fish Conservancy. They they want to eliminate ocean fishing, you know, mixed dock fishing. And they want to eliminate the hatchery program. That's a small minority viewpoint, very small minority viewpoint. They had an opportunity to move their agenda, they felt, and they took it. But it's an immoral decision. It makes me sick. That was Jim Moore, Eric Jordan, and Jackie Foss three Southeast Alaska controllers discussing their views on conservation as their fishery is under threat of closure from a lawsuit brought by the Washington State-based Wild Fish Conservancy to protect an endangered population of killer whales in Puget Sound. The Food and Drug Administration recently approved a new vaccine for the respiratory virus, RSV. This could be life-changing for many people, especially those living in rural Alaska. According to the CDC, RSV leads to as many as 160,000 hospitalizations of elderly people in the United States each year. In Bethel, Evan Erickson spoke with doctors on the front lines of RSV treatment in Alaska and has this story about this long-awaited breakthrough. Respiratory syncytial virus or RSV, has been a fact of life for decades in the United States and is the leading cause of respiratory infections in infants and children worldwide. Now, FDA approval of GSK's ARECSV vaccine, the first of its kind, has given medical professionals in Alaska new hope for dealing with the virus. They've been working on this vaccine since the 1960s. That's Michelle Nace, a Fairbanks-based pediatrician and staff physician with the Alaska Department of Health. So getting this first vaccine approval by FDA earlier this month was a phenomenally like, okay, we are there. We are going to be able to help these people. While for most people, RSV symptoms can be likened to the common cold, the virus can be deadly for the very young and very old, especially premature infants and adults 65 years and older. According to the CDC, there are as many as 10,000 RSV-related deaths among the elderly in the U.S. every year. Nace said the new vaccine for use in adults 60 and older is only the first step in the fight against RSV. As we know from what we learned through COVID, it is easier to test on adults and older people than it is to test on pregnant and infants. So we tend to see these vaccines come out first in that age group. But in the works and the pipeline are also these vaccines for pregnant people as well as infants. Yukon Kuskokwim Health Corporation Chief of Staff Dr. Ellen Hodges 
said the potential benefits of the vaccine go beyond preventing severe RSV infections in the elderly. There was a period of time when the our elders could be vaccinated against pneumococcal disease and we didn't yet have an approved vaccine for children and it did start to reduce the rates of pneumococcal disease among children as well. So we're hoping that by vaccinating our elders, we can have a twofold effect by protecting our elders against severe disease, but also hopefully protecting our most vulnerable babies as well. According to Dr. Hodges, the rate of hospitalization for RSV is five times greater among Alaska Native children than for the U.S. as a whole. In particular, the YK Delta has some of the highest rates of severe RSV uh, in the world, really, uh, but certainly in the United States, such so much so that there is a, a book called The Red Book, which is published by the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's about infectious disease. And we uh, the YK Delta merits a special comment in that book uh, because of our severity and amount of RSV that we have in our region. Dr. Hodges hopes Orexv will be fully approved soon. And I was actually just talking with the state and it has a possibility of being approved by the um, ACIP, which is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, with the CDC uh, as soon as this week. So we could potentially be able to order that sometime in the very near future. This means the vaccine could be available in time for rollout in Alaska in the YK Delta in the fall when the first cases of RSV are commonly seen. In Bethel, I'm Evan Erickson. A speed limit sign along the Juneau International Airport runway tells drivers to go no faster than nine and a half miles per hour. In Juneau, Katie Anastas looked into the origin of the sign and why it's effective. The North American Aerospace Defense The airport dike trail runs along the edge of the airport in the Mendenhall Wetlands State Game Refuge. It's a place to see wildlife and, if you know where to look, a very specific speed limit sign at the airport runway. Nellie Metcalf hadn't noticed it at first. I had probably walked past the sign a bajillion times, but um, I was walking with my boyfriend at the time and he was the one that noticed it and was like, what? How? Does that make sense? Nineteen and a half. So she asked KTOO to look into it. And as it turns out, it does make sense. An airfield crew member put up the sign years ago to get the attention of drivers going faster than 20. And according to airport management, it worked. But why does it work? That's a question for Dwight Hennessy. I am a chair and professor of psychology at Buffalo State University. Research shows drivers pay less attention to routes they're more familiar with. The reality is we can't pay 100% perfect focus attention to absolutely everything all the time, right? It's just not, it's not possible. If you have a monotonous environment where everything is the same, the same, the same, the same, breaking it up grabs our attention and draws us to that. And we're more likely to then process things once we've paid attention to them. He says that's why the airport sign works. We've seen a billion 20 miles per hour signs before, but the 19 and a half stands out. So that gets us to think. So it really is a, a clever approach. Back at the airport dike trail, Laura Minnie is walking her dog, Bodie. The story behind the sign gives her an idea. Let's just try that on Egan, right? As a matter of fact, the State Department of Transportation will try out a lower speed limit on Egan Drive, at least for part of it. 
This winter, the speed limit will be 45 miles per hour from Mendenhall Loop Road to the Sunny Point Interchange. New speed radar signs will let drivers know how fast they're going. DOT traffic and safety engineer Nathan Purvis says the goal is to reduce winter crashes near the notoriously dangerous Fred Meyer intersection. That was where the majority of crashes were happening was, you know, when it was icy out, people trying to make that uh, that turn through traffic. And so the goal is that by slowing people down, we'll have uh, bigger gaps in the traffic and easier to make the crossing. Some cities are trying to make all of their speed limit signs more noticeable. In Seattle, transportation officials have added speed limit signs at more frequent intervals. They also lowered speed limits on arterial and residential streets by five miles per hour. Seattle has reported a 22% decrease in crashes. Time will tell whether the temporary speed limit and radar signs will reduce wintertime crashes on Egan. But at the airport, the 19 and a half sign seems to be doing the trick. In Juneau, I'm Katie Anastas. U.S. fighter jets intercepted six Russian aircraft flying off Alaska's coasts again last week and accompanied them as they passed through the international airspace. Tim Ellis reports from Delta Junction. The North American Aerospace Defense Command says its Alaska NORAD region office detected, identified, and tracked the Russian aircraft that were flying through the Alaska Air Defense Identification Zone on Thursday. A NORAD news release issued Saturday says the Russian formation included TU-95 bombers, SU-35 fighters, and an air refueling tanker. In response, Alaska NORAD dispatched F-16 and F-22 fighter jets and an AWACS plane for what the agency called a routine interception. But the news release didn't say where the intercept occurred, nor how many U.S. aircraft were dispatched to accompany the Russian planes through the aircraft ID zone. NORAD officials routinely don't provide more information than released, and didn't again on Sunday. It's not unusual for Russian aircraft to fly through the Alaska Air ID zone, which is international airspace. NORAD says the Russian aircraft didn't enter U.S. or Canadian airspace and weren't considered a threat to either nation. But some observers noted the interception occurred while a large-scale military training exercise called Northern Edge is being conducted around Alaska, and while the U.S. and NATO are supporting Ukraine in its fight against the Russian invasion. In Delta Junction, I'm Tim Ellis.